People have often disagreed on how much time it takes for something to happen. Some people say six days. Other people say 13.8 billion years. And some other people say that I have 25 minutes to talk about this. <laughs> My intent this morning is to only prove one of those groups to be incorrect, but you never know. In the last several years, it's been increasingly important to clearly define words that you are going to use. So this morning, by the word creation, as we talk about creation being greater than evolution, by the word creation, I will be referring to what I read in Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. That in six days, God, through his word, spoke the universe and everything in it into existence. That's my definition of creation this morning. I'm not referring to something that is called intelligent design or theistic evolution, where there is recognition of a designer who has been directing the evolution of life over millions of years. The biblical account tells us who that designer was and how long the process took. The definition of evolution that I'll be using has become more challenging to explain in recent years. In many places, schools are renaming biology as evolutionary biology or evolutionary science, so that the term evolution will blanket everything about the life sciences. So when you say you don't believe in evolution, you have to be clear. Because if you say you don't believe in evolution, you are a science denier. Perhaps some of you have experienced that in the last several years, as the world has been rapidly exchanging God for science as their object of worship. This is the way the devil works. It's also the way the U.S. Congress works, or maybe it's maybe the U.S. Congress works because that's, I don't know, one of those is influencing the other, I think. A bill will be put forward that makes three claims. Abortion is good, the sky is blue, and grass is green. So when you vote against that bill because you don't agree that abortion is good, they will scream from the rooftops that you don't believe the sky is blue and the grass is green. How can you not believe that? So we have to clearly define what we mean when we are talking about evolution. There are two classifications of evolution. I'm sure you've heard this before. Microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution happens on a small scale. That's what the prefix micro refers to. Within a single species. It's really what we would call basic genetics that a lot of you have studied probably. Subtle differences in beak shapes in finches might allow them to survive better than other finches in certain environments. And so those genetic traits get passed on to the offspring because they're alive when they have the offspring. 
The other traits might not get passed on because they're dead because of some environmental factor. During the Industrial Revolution, peppered moths in just a few years became black moths because moths that happened to have a little bit more pigmentation could blend in better with the suit on the buildings and the trees and not get eaten by birds. So that trait was passed on to the moth offspring. This is basic genetics interacting with environmental forces, and these changes can be seen even within a few generations. But at the end of the day, the finches are still finches, and the moths are still moths. This is not the evolution I'm talking about this morning. I believe in that evolution. I've seen it. I even worked with it in college. Macroevolution happens on a scale that transcends the boundaries of a single species. You take observable microevolution, basic genetics, and you pretend that if it happened over 4 billion years, you could get every possible life form, including humans, all from single-celled organisms. And we won't take any time today to talk about where those single-celled organisms came from. This is the part of evolution that we are talking about this morning. And before we really get into it, I want to apologize to my fellow science nerds that I see in the audience, mostly the people that have the last name of Morris. So. <laughs> Sometimes um, I can get too deep into the scientific weeds on some of these topics, and um, I've decided to try to avoid that uh, today. I've talked about most of the science that I think I'm going to. I'd like to look at three other, I think, just as convincing points about why creation is greater than evolution. The most important reason that creation is greater than evolution is that it's true. And those that were there when it happened testified about it. Proverbs 12 and 17 says, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. When Jesus was before Pilate discussing the truth in John 18 and 37, he said, In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So it's important that we listen to what Jesus says about these things. What did he say about how the world began? And is he a credible witness? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens, and the earth. In verse 2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The rest of the chapter describes six days of time where everything was spoken into existence by God's Word. God in this chapter is plural. And in verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image in our likeness 
some interesting pronouns in this verse. Who is this us? John chapter 1 gives us more insight into who all was present at creation. Verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Drop down to verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The creation did not accept and acknowledge their very own creator. Drop down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So now we see who this us of Genesis 1 and 26 was. It was God the Father, it was the Spirit, and it was the Word. John tells us that the Word became flesh. The Word was born into this world to become the Son of God. And he was given the name Jesus, which means salvation. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 19, this passage also testifies to who was present at creation. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and, and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Again, Jesus is not just present at creation. He is the creator. As a creation side note, I think this passage is interesting because it says he created things in heaven, he created invisible things, he created principalities and rulers, which might be referencing even the angels. And this would have to probably be right before or during, it's hard to tell about these time things, right before or during Genesis 1 and 1, because Job 38 and 7 says that the angels rejoiced when the earth was formed, so they would have had to have been created before that. But the 148th Psalm gives us a list of things starting with the angels. Angels is the first thing in that list. And in verse 5 it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. Jesus was involved in all creation of all things. And regardless of this, Jesus as the Word as the word, was instrumental in the creation of the universe. We can also reference Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact, the exact, representation 
of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus was present at the creation and he was creating. We need to take his testimony about it as truth. Exodus 20 and 1 simply says, and God spoke all these words. This is before Jesus was born, so God in this verse would include the word. Dropping down to verse 11, the word testifies. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word here is testifying that everything was spoken into existence in six days. In Mark 13 and 19, Jesus says, Because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Here Jesus testifies that the world was created. In Mark 10 and 6, Jesus says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There's a lot in that verse. If macroevolution is true, the way that man testifies it is, then Jesus is falsely testifying about it here. Jesus says a lot here. He says that Homo sapiens is what we are classified as by man. Homo sapiens, humans, were created. He says they were created. And he gives a timeline. He says they were created at the beginning. They were created at the beginning. Not only that, but Jesus says, he testifies, that they were created with two different genders from the beginning. Already with the capability to reproduce. This is what Jesus testifies to. It's not what man says. That's what Jesus testifies to. You know, it's hard enough to imagine the evolution of just a single complex organism. But what about the evolution of various processes? When David blew the starting notes this morning for every single part, and you tried to match it, and we were watching him conduct, and we all began to sing praises to our Creator. Did you feel anything? Did you feel anything in you? Did you say, wow, that's kind of weird. All that from some random mutations and chemical, biochemical processes? Is that what you felt? Or were you praising your creator? I want to just yell out, creation. How can you deny that in yourself? How can we deny that in ourselves? What about protein synthesis from DNA? I'd like to go through that whole process. <laughs> I really would. Because I can't go through that process and just think, wow, look at 
How is this possible? What about the flight of birds? When did that evolve? When did that evolve? Jesus is talking about here male and female. He's talking about reproduction. How did that process evolve? A husband has the ability to send cells from his body that contain only half of his genetic code to his wife. These cells are specialized to actually travel within her and to find, most of the times, a single cell that contains half of her genetic code. Those two cells, through some processes, will join together, and a new life will form, a new flesh, with a full complement of 46 chromosomes. How did the process in one organism evolve to so perfectly complement the evolution of another process in another organism so that that could happen? Jesus says, it didn't. Jesus says, I made them, male and female, from the beginning. In John 5, 46-47, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? If we don't believe what Moses wrote about Jesus or what he wrote about creation... Why would he believe what Jesus says about it? Point number one, creation is greater than evolution because it's true. To deny creation is to deny Jesus. Evolution is exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Romans 1 and 25. Another reason that creation is greater than evolution is that it provides a worldview with an absolute code of morality. Psalm 24 and 1 says that all things are God's. So he has the right to tell us how we should conduct our lives. There is an absolute moral standard given to us by our Creator. We can't just do what we want to do. That's why a lot of people won't join us in Christianity. We say there's things we want to do and we can't do them because our Creator has told us we can't and we're going to obey Him. Evolution denies a Creator and therefore denies a God-given moral code. Man is just the result of random mutations, and biochemical processes, and like all the other animals, should be allowed to act on his base instincts and desires and do anything that he wants. Most evolutionists will disagree with that. Most evolutionists will disagree with that they can't have a moral code, that they can't know what's right and wrong. And I know good people. They seem like they're good people that have argued with me about these things. 
But according to their evolutionary worldview, they're irrational. That is irrational. You can say you have a moral code and still be irrational. Why adhere to any type of moral code? It would actually make more sense to lie and to steal and to even kill if it advances yourself in society. That's what evolution tells you. Why wouldn't it make more sense to have that as your moral code? And if an evolutionist claimed to have a moral code, it wouldn't be an absolute moral code that everyone else should follow. A moral code from a creator that says that we all need to follow that. It would just be relative to his own personal beliefs of what he thought was right or wrong. And who's to say if his moral code is greater than, symbol's gone, <laughs> greater than or less than than somebody else's moral code that they've decided is what's right. Over the years, I've had countless conversations with people who believe in evolution. And inevitably, they get mad. I don't, maybe I'm making them mad. I hope not. But inevitably, it seems like they end up getting mad. And they say, I just don't understand how you could possibly believe in a six-day creation. It always comes down to that. And I always answer the same way. I don't understand why you care. Why do you care what I think? Why do you care that I believe in a creator? Why are you wasting your time trying to convince me of something that you just know you know is absolutely false? Well, you're lying. You're lying to your children. Oh, is lying bad? How do, why do you think lying is bad? Did you read that in the Bible? Maybe that's why they're mad. I'm kind of... <laughs> I was sounding a little snarky there, wasn't I? It's, uh, yeah, I can, sorry, I apologize. So. But it's, it's infuriating, really. It kind of is. It makes no sense. Why even argue with me about it? If you're just random, if you're just a random product, then, then who cares if you're right or wrong? And you're right or wrong has no effect on me anyway. John 3.19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Romans 1.18-20, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what, they, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In the next few years, when one of the states in our nation passes a new law that says in the case of financial hardship on the mother, or physical problems with the child, that that child can be terminated all the way up until three weeks after 
it is born. Who's to say that that moral standard is unacceptable? Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, in her book, Woman and the New Race, in chapter 5, which she titled, The Wickedness of Creating Large Families, wrote, The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Evolution was her world view. It was the lens through which she focused her ideas. Therefore, she came up with and constantly tried to foist her own moral code upon the world. On November 24, 1859, Charles Darwin published his book called On the Origin of Species. But most of you know that that's just an abbreviated name. The full name of the book is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin's book led to the rise of eugenics. The term eugenics was coined in 1883 by a cousin of Darwin, Francis Galton, to promote the ideal of perfecting the human race by, as he put it, getting rid of its undesirables while multiplying its desirables. That is, by encouraging the procreation of the social Darwinian fit and discouraging that of the unfit. Margaret Sanger was also a proponent of eugenics as well as Hitler and the entire Nazi party. And they all packaged their ideas in a cloak of morality. Remember the chapter? Wickedness. The most, the most merciful thing you could do. Those are, the, those are words of, of morality. And they're packaged in those words. The evolution worldview says that there are races that are more desirable, fit, and intelligent than other races. That some races are worth saving and others are not. The creation worldview says exactly the opposite. It says that you have a loving creator who from one man created all the nations, Acts 17 and 26. A loving creator who does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right, Acts 10 and 35. A loving creator who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 and 4. The solution to racism, prejudice, and evil has always been and will always be faith in Jesus Christ. Always. And until the world does that, these evils will continue. These evils will continually be here until we have faith in Jesus Christ. 
so that we can all love our brothers. Point number two is creation is greater than evolution because it provides equity to all people. It provides them all with the same moral cornerstone and promises salvation to any who chooses to align themselves with it. Finally, the third point, creation is greater than evolution because it provides an explanation for the fact that mankind is fundamentally and vastly different from the rest of creation. Instead of being the crown jewel of God's creation, evolution devalues mankind to the status of mere animals, where only the fittest will be naturally selected for. It suppresses the, the blatant truth that can be observed even by a small child that mankind possesses something different. Just spend a day in the world looking around. There's creation, and then there's human beings. To quote Darwin, man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work worthy of the interposition of a deity. More humble, and I think truer to consider him created from animals. I like to ask him, what do you mean by humble? Humility, is, it, is that a good trait? But what does God say? What does God say? Let's return to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. In Genesis 1, God makes it clear to us through his word that being created in his image is what sets us apart and makes us distinct from the rest of creation. It's the first time we hear it on that sixth day. Not with the animals, but with man. Let us make man in our image. But what does that mean? What does that mean that we are created in the image of God? Is this referring to our physical form, our physical bodies and appearance? Is that what it's referring to? The Bible does talk about the face of God, the finger of God, the back of God, the feet of God, and that's an interesting study. You could go a long ways with that. And humans are distinct from other animals in their human form, but we, we do share an awful lot of similarities with a lot of animals. That's, that's a fact, too. We do share a lot of similarities with a lot of, a lot of animals. I think that's evidence of a common creator as opposed to evidence of a common evolutionary ancestor. It makes sense to me, the common creator, there would be some similarities in the, in the creation that we could see. I don't think the human form is what is meant by the image of God. Philippians 2 and 7 says, But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and it was made in the likeness of man. 
This refers to Jesus. Jesus took on the human form. He was the Word. He took on the human form, but he didn't lose his deity. He didn't lose his deity. John 4 and 24 says God is spirit. Jesus took on the human form to display God's image in it, to display God's image in human form, not because the human form was God's image. In John 1 and 14, the word took on flesh in order to display God's glory. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 gives us, I think, great insight in about what it means to be created in the image of God. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness, the image, of God in true righteousness and holiness. To be created in the image of God means we have the capacity to be righteous and holy. The parallel passage in Colossians 3 and 10 says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, after the image of its creator. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of of its creator. So to be created in the image of God means to possess knowledge of our creator and the attributes that we share with him. Righteousness, holiness, love, self-control, justice, grace, mercy. These are attributes of God. And we're created in the image of God. So he has given these things. These things are within us. They are within our capabilities. He has given us a conscience, which is knowledge of what is righteous and what is holy and what is wrong and what is evil. In both of these passages, Ephesians 4 and 23 and Colossians 3 and 10, in the ESV at least, the word renewed is used. Renewed. To make new again. Renew. To make new again. To return to your state of newness. This is because although mankind was created in the image of God, we have sinned. And when we sin, we very often do not reflect the image of God as well as we should. This is why the word took on flesh, to remind us of what it looks like. To remind us of what it looks like when man fully reflects God's image the way that Jesus did. This is why we follow Christ, to try to get back, to renew our state of more fully reflecting the image of our creator. The first Adam was created in the image of God, but then sinned, which distorted our reflection of his image. The second Adam was the exact image of God so that we may see how we are to be. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Jesus, we can see the image of God, and we should be transforming into that same image. When we don't reflect the image of God, we give the evolutionist their best argument. When we are in the world and we do not reflect the image of God, we give the evolutionists their best argument. They classify you as animal. They classify you as animal. And why shouldn't they? When we act like them. When we act exactly like them. Peter makes this clear in 2 Peter 2. When he says, but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only, with no higher purpose, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. Being created in the image of God means we retain the knowledge of God and what he expects of us that we put to death the fleshly animal within us and we transform ourselves more closely with his image. He will let us go the way of the animal if we so choose. He will let us go the way of the animal, but he would much rather you conform to his image. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Romans 1 and 28. I mentioned earlier in my definition of creation that I was not talking about theistic evolution. I want to strengthen that point just a little bit here. Theistic evolution is man's attempt to avoid controversy by merging creation and evolution together. The argument is that it's clear from the Bible that time is not the same for us as it is for God. So maybe, just maybe, each day of creation could be millions, millions of years. And that might be a tempting path for some of us to go down, but we need to be warned. It will end in completely illogical outcomes. Completely illogical outcomes. The Genesis 1 creation account is not even in the same order as evolutionary theory is. We have the earth and vegetation for millions of years on day three, millions of years represented by day three, and on day four, the, the son of alls. Is that going to make any sense to an evolutionist? Are, are they going to be on your side because you are trying to come their way. For millions of years, we have flying creatures. This is the worst. Flying creatures represented by day five. Millions of years, flying creatures. And then on day six, we have land mammals evolve. You all know enough about the basics of evolution. That will make no sense. The evolutionist will mock you anyway. So why not just stick to the biblical creation account? They're going to mock you anyway. Theistic evolution does not hold up in any way. 
But in my opinion, the biggest problem in, is at what point in the evolutionary history of the genus Homo, which is Latin for human, the genus human, at what point in the evolutionary history did God breathe into man the breath of life so that he could become a living soul? Where are you going to merge those two? Did they evolve to a good enough point? And then God breathed into him and made him a living soul? In other words, in which species of human was the first to become an image bearer? What was the first human species that could become an image bearer of God? What characteristics did they need to evolve to become an image bearer of God? If you want to go down to theistic evolution, you're going to have to answer these questions. The last four species, according to evolutionary theory, of humans or homo, and you know, this is just based on fragments of skulls, some longer, some bigger than others. If we could look at all of our skulls right now, I'm sure you'd see some differences. I know I've been told a lot of times I have a thick one, so... I just take it as an evolutionary compliment and move on. But the last four uh, ancestors of us are Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo ergoster, and us currently, who are called Homo sapiens. These are all Latin terms. Homo is human, so all these are human. And then the last term is kind of a description of what they thought about that particular man in human history. Hobilis was handyman. It's Latin for handyman because they found some simple tools. Homo erectus is upright man because they think that that's the point where he could start walking on two feet. Homo ergoster is workman because he found some more tools. And then we have Homo sapiens, which is the only observable human species ever. Keep that in mind. None of these other classifications have ever been observed, ever. Homo sapiens is the only one we can observe because I can see you right now in front of me. I can see how you behave and how you're acting. And I'd say you've all, you've all reached Homo sapiens. None of you are still Homo habilis or something like that. So. They've all went extinct. They've all went extinct. What is Latin for Homo sapiens? What has mankind classified us and the most recent human as? Anybody know? Oh, that's, that's disappointing. Homo sapiens means wise man. And you didn't even know. <laughs> Devolved. I didn't know either, actually, so I was just, you know. <laughs> Wise man. That's kind of, I think that's comical. Homo sapiens were the ones that did all these classifications. You realize that, right? We classified ourselves as wise man, which means we looked at creation, even evolutionists looked at creation and they said, there's something different. There is something different than everything else. Wise man. Homo sapiens apparently are the ones 
that then would have been breathed into life, the breath of God. The Homo sapiens, I guess, are the ones that eventually evolved to the point where we could be image bearers of God. But what is the obvious conclusion of that? What about those other humans before that? Were they soulless creatures? Were they all lost, doomed to destruction like all the other animals? And we'll take it even further. What about Homo sapiens today? Right here on this earth. What about mentally challenged Homo sapiens? Are they not worthy? Do they not distribute, display the image of God? Evolutionists would say, apparently, according to this, no. They wouldn't. Evolution always ends in tragic, tragic consequences. This last winter, I had an experience, and I've shared this with a couple of you, and you might not think it's a big experience, <laughs> but it, uh, it kind of rocked me for quite a while. Well, it's still affecting me right now. I had a student, and I knew her very well, and she'd been in, she graduated this last uh, fall or spring, and she'd been in four of the classes that I had taught. She was in my, my class every single year, a different class. I didn't fail her. I had four diff distinct classes. <laughs> she was a very good student. Four distinct classes. She was in every one of them. And this last spring, um, she came up to my desk, and she was shaking just uncontrollably. And I looked up, and there are just tears flowing down her face. And she's trying to tell me something, but she can't even utter the words. And I was concerned. And I jumped up, and I said, come out here in the hall. And we went out in the hall. I said, what's, what's the matter? And she said, I just got a text that my brother has been taken to the hospital. And something as serious has happened to him. And she didn't know if he was alive or if he was dead. And she could hardly even control herself the emotions and the things that were going in her life, as obviously we would all feel, right? And <laughs> right off the cuff, I said, I thought, we need to pray for him. And I said, just blurted it out, do you believe in God? And she kind of went like this, and she said, well, no. And... I don't think I hesitated. I felt like I hesitate, like I went into shock. But I don't think she noticed that I hesitated at all. And I said, well, I do. You go on down to the office, and I'll stay here, and I'll pray for your brother. And she said, thanks. And I've, I've talked to you about some of this. That bothered me. What do you think those feelings were that you were having? Can you explain the love that you have for your brother that you probably would even trade places with him if you could? Where did that come from? Where is that within you? And you don't believe that a creator put that in you? That you're created in the image of God? That that, that is why you are different than this dog or this bird over here? How can you not acknowledge the feelings that you have within you? When we were singing the songs this morning, you should be able, we're without excuse. We are without excuse. 
we should feel those things that are within us that are God-given things. We are created in the image of God. Creation is greater than evolution because it is true. And Jesus testified about it. Creation is greater than evolution because it provides an absolute moral compass to guide our lives. Creation is greater than evolution because it tells us we are God's children and have been given characteristics of his image. He loves us. In all three of these, creation is greater than evolution because it gives us hope. We are not resigned to just blindly following basic biochemical processes and acting on our instincts as brute beasts. We were created with God's glory, and we hope to be renewed and return to God's glory. This morning, I think I'll leave you with where we started in the opening reading. Romans 8, 18 through 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We offer you the invitation this morning as we stand and sing the invitation song.